Hello, good afternoon, folks. Nice to see you all. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce to you Lucy Cocaine. Um, Lucy is quite accustomed to some comments when she's talking about her speciality of addictions and her surname, Cocaine. So <laughs> I'm sure she'll have a few quips to tell you herself of things she's picked up over the years. Um, Lucy's going to be telling us a bit about um, addictions in the 21st century. How does the church respond? An issue that we all come up against in one way or another, often in our church. There will be an opportunity to ask questions. There'll be a roving mic at the end of her, her um, seminar. And it's going to be an interactive group, so there'll be group work. Uh, so it won't be just sitting, listening all the way through. So I'm going to hand you over to Lucy. She'll tell you a bit about, about what she's going to do. And I hope you'll really enjoy this seminar. Thank you. Thanks. I don't think that... I'll do my notes now. <laughs> okay, thank you um, for coming. I'm absolutely amazed that there are so many people here. Uh, this was originally planned as a 20-minute slot, and then I got told on Thursday that I could have a whole hour if I wanted it. So I hope that you enjoy it. I just want to tell you a bit about me and how I got involved. Is it very echoey or is it just me? It's echoey. It's very strange. I don't know how Carl puts up with it. I tend to talk very fast. So if I talk fast, if you just put your hands up, that will just remind me that I'm talking too fast. Okay, my grandmother always used to say, I talk fast and I mumble. So just to warn you. Um, I'm a consultant psychiatrist. Uh, I work at, um, in NHS Lothian and I'm based at Spittle Street. But my journey into addiction has uh, been a rather strange one. I had my first heroin when I was one. My mother said I didn't have any pain because they gave me so much heroin when I had some surgery when I was one. So that was my first introduction to drugs. And because I've had chronic health problems, I've seen a lot of people developing uh, addictions and things through you know, what we call iatrogenic, like doctor-caused addiction. However, I had no interest in this. And despite doing a psychology degree and then doing medicine, I thought I was going to be a surgeon. But then God intervened in an amazing way. I became a Christian in my last year of psychology, just before I did medicine. And God put, through, put people into my life in my first year as a junior doctor. And it was very clear that he didn't want me to do surgery. So I went to become a psychiatrist and then a GP. And when I was a GP, uh, an amazing elder in my church, um, who I was hoping could be here, but unfortunately couldn't, um, came alongside me and really talked to me about addiction. And in the next two years, both of his sons died from addiction. At that time, I was a GP, and I remember playing the flute at the first son's funeral and going up to the second son saying, look, please, I don't want to be here next month with you in the box. And there I was next month, and I was just so overcome I couldn't actually play the flute the second time, as you can understand. But at that time, I was still thinking I'm going to be an academic or I'm going to go out and work on the mission field. But when I went back into psychiatry, I ended up as a special interest doing addiction and people were saying, you're just made for this. You can't, you see everyone in the church, it was a very Pentecostal church, I was saying, look, why, you know, why are you struggling against this? So I prayed about it really hard, and I said to God, if this is what you want me to do, then this is what I'll do. So I still have that link back down to Stockport. I'm still director of a charity down there. But, you know, I hadn't wanted to do addiction. I had to really pray to God, say, can you give me a love for these people? Because I can't love these people. They, some of them are very hard to love, and especially when you're a doctor, you tend to get a lot of very negative comments from people because you don't give them what they want. But, you know, God has really blessed me through working with people with addiction. 
And so much so that when I came to Morningside Baptist Church, I had to make a different prayer. I had to say, can you help me to love these people that are upper middle class? I... <laughs> <laughs> so I had actually found that working with people with addiction, you know, I got so much honesty from them, so much love from them, that in fact, you know, coming back to the church was quite a shock, going from a Pentecostal church to NBC, which has moved a lot in the last 10 years, I can tell you. You couldn't put your hand up without being regarded an utter when I first came here. But, <laughs> you know, this church has really been full of the Spirit. And I've been trained for over 10 years for NBC to become involved in addiction. And in the last six months, just door after door has started opening. And I really feel that God is saying that this church, you know, that the name Centaur is just such a blessing to me because I feel that this is going to be a central resource to bring all the churches and the Christians together to help form some kind of structure. One thing that struck me as we were looking through, looking around all the things is it's, there's little bits of addiction in a lot of these stores, but it's actually no central resource. So I'm going to come back to that in a bit. Anyway, so let's introduce you to someone. Um, who do you think is an addict? Can you put the next slide up? So, and keep going. Sorry, I've, I've done it. So is this your, your idea of what an addict looks like? Or is it the person sitting outside Sainsbury's with a begging bowl? Oh, quiet. I'd like to introduce you to someone who's come through addiction and just to put a human face onto addiction before we actually go and talk about the medical side and the biblical side in a bit more detail. So can I bring up Mike, Mark Middleton? Is this one working? With a roving mic? Okay. So Mike, would you like to... Tell us a bit about your own journey and how you came to be here today. Uh, yeah, it's quite a long journey, but um, to keep it short and uh, in summary form, uh, I wasn't a Christian um, and um, in my early 20s developed a habit um, mostly for cocaine um, and started off as a social um, engagement and then developed into uh, a fairly nasty habit to the point that I was um, at my worst point um, consuming about five grams of cocaine a day, um, which um, for those of you who are clinicians out there will know that's quite a lot, probably enough to kill me if I tried that now. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I actually came to faith through, um, through stopping drugs, or rather I stopped drugs through coming to faith. Um, God uh, took a hold of my life, and I'd reached a point where I was... Um, at the end of the road and it was either check out or this God that everyone was talking about was real and I uh, was prepared to give it a shot so there wasn't much other option. So, Could you tell us a bit about how you actually encountered God and how, you know, how did, the, did you reach out to the church or did the church reach out to you? Can you remember that process? Yeah. Um, during, uh, although I was uh, semi-estranged from my family during my um, teenage years, in fact, when I was about 14, 15, my um, parents both became believers. And um, I had a healthy respect, um, if you can call it healthy, but I had a respect at least for their faith insofar as I saw that it gave them a good quality of life. Um, but I didn't think it was something for me. I felt that uh, I could look after myself and I didn't need a crutch in life as I saw it back then. Um, and uh, in hindsight, I wouldn't do a very good job, did I? But um, probably could have done with that crutch a lot earlier. But uh, um, because of their faith, um, they obviously were praying for me. And um, my father sent me photocopies of a daily devotional called UCB. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that um, word for today. And 
I, when I received them, I didn't read them. I'd kind of stack them away. I'm a real hoarder. I, I tend to keep things, fortunately. Um, God knew that. And uh, I kept them. And um, when I reached that sort of final um, furlong of, of that um, stage of my life, um, I reached out to, um, to the letters that family had written to me. Um, actually, ironically, as a way to say goodbye to them without actually physically having to say goodbye to them so that I could follow through on what I thought I was about to do, which was to end my life. And um, amongst the letters were the photocopies of these um, Word for Today that my father had slipped in with his letters. And uh, <clears throat> I hadn't read them the first time. I'd read his letters, but not, not the photocopies, because I just thought, oh, another Christian thing. And this time I read them, and they were just word for today, for the day that he'd written that letter, whenever it was. Um, so there was no thought process on his part of, I'll send him that one on that day because that will have the, the greatest effect. And they were several months apart. And yet, each of those um, daily devotionals were specific to the situation that I was in. And uh, that really freaked me out <laughs> at the time. I already thought that I had um, mental issues. I was um, suffering from severe paranoia. I was um, almost housebound insofar as going out in the street. Being amongst strangers was quite scary. Standing in, up in front of you guys uh, like I am now back then would be totally impossible. I mean, I used to, to give you an idea, um, for the first six months after stopping taking drugs, every day just walking to work, which was at the other end of the street, not very far, um, I would uh, burst into tears before opening the door because I was so frightened about seeing other human beings. I was so ashamed of myself, so disgusted in myself, um, and believed that the whole world saw me the same way that I saw myself. Um, these are all quite uh, common for um, people with addictions, I think, when you're that engrossed um, and self-absorbed. Um, anyhow, so I, I um, on the final day, if we can call it that, I found myself on the floor of my flat. I hadn't uh, left the property for some time. Um, hadn't eaten properly for quite a long time, had used up all the drugs that I had left, and I just thought, I can't do this anymore. I can't live another 24 hours of this existence, this, this nothing. And um, because of the UCB uh, photocopies, I literally just did what I thought was the right thing to do. I got down and... Uh, and prayed, and just, it was a very simple prayer. It was, God, if you're real, if, you, if you're out there somewhere, um, then you need to do something, and you need to do it now, because if you don't, I'm checking out, and you've got 24 hours, because I'm, I'm done, I can't, can't do this anymore. And that was the last time that I did drugs. That was the last time that I felt like doing drugs. It was as if someone turned off the lights um, from one day to the next, and that was after nearly nine years of use. Uh, and certainly four years of trying to stop. Um, I can't really explain it. I didn't go to counseling. I didn't go to rehab. It just happened. Um, but that was only the beginning of the journey. And, and, and I think a lot of people um, tend to look at addiction and think, well, if they get help, if they go to a rehab or residential, or if they get help in the community or through their local um, healthcare department, then they'll be fine. But actually, that's just the veneer. The addiction is just the veneer underneath it are the core problems that cause the addiction in the first place and that's the same for every addict, addict and every addiction and <clears throat> the next 12 years or if I look back the last 12 years have been uh, the real recovery process and I started off as a very angry Christian which is quite uh, ironic <laughs> having just been saved by God I um 
I thought, okay, so he's real. So what is this, some kind of sick game? He's some megalomaniac and we're all chess pieces on his board, um, which is not the right reaction. Um, but uh, God, in his um, infinite grace and beauty and love, just kept pouring blessing upon blessing upon blessing on me and slowly rather like the silver smelted out the impurities and over time uh, I fell in love with him and I came to, to love myself through that and other people and, and now I live an amazing life which is all thanks to him and his praise praise to him for that okay thank you So not a, an untypical story, but I think the thing that amazes me about Mark's testimony is that he had what I would call a, a healing experience, you know, that he, once he met God, that was it. You know, it was almost like God completely relieved that, the, the full battle that most addicts go through, you know, at least in the first years. He had more healing to do, but it was, it was a transformation, his coming to faith. But it's not like that for everyone. Being a doctor, I just want to put some facts and figures down. So if we could have the next slide... So I want to give you an outline of addiction and I want to talk a little bit about a few Bible verses and then I want to talk about our response. So that's going to be supposed to be 15 minutes each because we've used 15 minutes already. So let's have the next slide, please. So can you read that? It's slightly blurry. So this is just a start. This is the standard slide I show my medical students. I think there's one medical student here um, about the nature and the, the, the kind of degree of problem we have. This is a few years old now, but... You know, this is not a minor problem in society. I think you heard the figure earlier in the day of one in five of us will have fairly major mental health problems. But in fact, when it comes to addiction, we're looking at much more than that. We're looking at problems, substance misuse, huge problems. Can I have the next slide? This is a very interesting slide because it compares what Scotland's doing. I know you're not all from Scotland, but England's there. England's the red one at the bottom. This is cirrhosis rates, okay? So these are people that are dying of cirrhosis, and the majority of people, vast majority, this is due to alcohol. And if you look at these rates and what's happened since the war, you can see two takeoff points in that graph, can't you? If you think about it, on average, it takes 10 years to develop cirrhosis. So has anyone got any idea what the takeoff point was? Say 1970, something changed in 1960. What happened in 1960 in our society? You can answer. Yeah. Sorry, you have to charge a bit higher. Strikes, yeah. So, licensing laws, yeah. And we'd know that two things, that, you know, if you look at all the evidence, there are two things that affect alcohol consumption. One of them is the availability and one of them is the price. So around the 50s, 60s, the, the price of alcohol compared to income fell, you know, in comparison. Then, of course, you know, when I was a child, you could only go to the shops 9 till 5, you know, Monday to Friday, and, you know, in Uphall it was 9 till 1 on Saturday. You know, whereas now we've got 24-hour shops, okay, alcohol's not available 24 hours. But my son, who's 20, can go clubbing till 3 o'clock in the morning in Edinburgh and continue drinking, and usually they drink a bottle of vodka before they go out. So we've got the change in the law, we've got the change in the pricing. And interestingly, the, the takeoff in England and Wales 
happens later because we deregulated first in our great wisdom. And England looked at what happened in Scotland and said, hey, look, they're not using drunk and disorderly. Their, their drunk and disorderly has gone down. But in fact, the reason it went down was the police stopped using it because there were just so many, it wasn't, wasn't really a worthwhile penalty. So England then followed Scotland. The good news is that the, the 10 years after that, we are beginning to see a level off and a beginning for that to come back down. Can I have the next slide? So what's the actual use? How, how much drugs and alcohol are people using at different ages? This is a comparison of different ages. So the majority of us, I'm afraid, are probably in the, in the green, aren't we? Yeah. If you look at the young children, the, even the 16 to 19-year-olds, 20% of them are using some kind of drug or alcohol. This is taken from a Scottish survey. This is a Scottish crime survey where we asked, they asked people, you know, you know what is your contact with drugs and alcohol? So it wasn't, a, this is a small population. This is a national national survey that's done in 2003. Does that surprise you or do you think that's what you would have expected? The youngest person I've seen that's been injecting heroin was 12. Okay, I saw that girl injected by her sister who was 16. So what's happening now is with education, we think education's great because, you know, we're telling our children a lot more. What happens is it increases the, the children's confidence and there's a lot of evidence now that giving too much education is counterproductive and that because children think they, they know it and they have confidence. And I certainly see this as a cultural thing in, in our children, you know, that the power of media, we've talked about that already, the parental influence, the church's influence is much less than, than the influence of the TV and of their peers. Okay, can I have the next slide? So, what I'd like you to do is just to turn around into little groups like you did in Rob's talk and just have a think about this. You know, where are these people in our church? You know, or if you're not a church goer in your society, what, where do you contact these people if you're not? Can I just have a show of hands? How many of you work with people with drugs and alcohol directly? So quite a lot of you. So what I'd like you to do is to exclude your work, obviously, and just think about, you know, outside work. Where do you actually come into contact with these people? How do, how do these people actually have a chance to hear the gospel, have a chance to have a Christian influence? So maybe you could just think about five minutes for that. Two particular things. What I'd like to think about is your, your church or your faith organization. What kind of support do you have for addiction in your faith organization? Who would you go to? And this is kind of a very personal question for me because I've been in this church for almost 10 years and I've had two people in 10 years come up and ask me about addictions. So, you know, so I'm just interested. You know, where do you go for help and support in addiction? So can I just ask you to turn around and have a little talk about that for a few minutes? Okay, can I stop you there? Very difficult to stop them once they start, isn't it? <laughs> could I ask you if you could, if you got a piece of blue card and if there was anything that leapt out at you as a gap in your organization or a need or a resource that you haven't got, could you just make a note of that now on the back of the card? If there's anything, you know, that as a group you felt was something that you really felt would be useful to you in your church? or in your place of worship. So I know some of you have been using the blue card for notes, but there's plenty more card if you want to come and get it. Okay, so I want to just talk very quickly through some of the medical aspects of addiction. So next slide. So I want to distinguish here between problematic substance misuse and chemical dependence. 
Okay, because obviously as a doctor, I, I see mainly people that actually have a, a, a dependence on something, and that means if you stop it, you get physical symptoms of withdrawal, okay? So that's what I mean when I talk about chemical addiction, and I know we use these words very differently in different settings, and it often needs medical attention. So for instance, if someone's chemically addicted to alcohol and you stop the alcohol, and they go into withdrawals, if they don't get the right supplements or vitamins, you can actually cause brain damage. Okay, so that's what I'm talking about. We go on to the next one. Okay, but we know it's not just a brain disease. Um, Addiction is a consequence of the fall. If we look at this verse from Jeremiah, I will fill everyone in this land with drunkenness. I will smash them against each other, even parents against children. And I really feel God gave me this verse when I was thinking about what to talk as the central verse that I want to take away. Because it's very easy to focus on the individual, the, you know, the addict. I hate that word, but you know, the person who has a substance misuse. And often, you know, all our efforts go into meeting that person's needs and you know, we can spend huge amounts of resources on someone who's not even ready to change. So what I want us to do in, in this conference is to think about what is our responsibility as a church? You know, are we in a country or even as the world and in this position that, that Jeremiah was talking to at that time for, for Israel? So is this really a symptom of what's happening spiritually in our country? And that's something that we can all do, even if we don't all feel called to minister to people who have substance misuse problems. We can all pray and we can all repent. So I'm going to come back to that later. Also, we have individual responsibilities. So we know that even if someone has a disease, they have a responsibility as an adult to seek appropriate measures to overcome their illness, don't we? we that's one of our fundamental tenets. If you've got diabetes, you know, it's your responsibility to go and get treatment from the doctor. It's your responsibility to use the right food and to take the right medication. And I think in, I see a big change in the health service just now that, you know, before we were very keen on methadone, for instance, for opiate addiction, but there was no responsibility on that patient to actually get better. So we now have a huge proportion of people, over 2,000 in Edinburgh, who are what I would call parked on methadone. You know, yes, it's work, they're not, they're not using um, drugs as much, they're not injecting as much, they're not spreading HIV, but in fact, because of the benefit system and the way it works, for these people to actually get well, you know, with no jobs, you know, they're, they're almost stuck. And I think that's something that the government is really beginning to respond to. Have any of you heard of The Road to Recovery? Which is a really good document. If you're from England, it's really worth getting hold of a copy because, it, you know, it really, it really, to me, it's a very moral response to addiction because it brings back this idea of individual responsibility. Can I have the next slide? So why do people use and misuse drugs? You know, we all regulate our own emotions. We've talked about that already today. Just keep going, so I should have put it all on once. What if you had to do, deal with these kind of things? I think that most of us come from fairly privileged backgrounds. I had fantastic parents. You know, everyone has issues with their parents. But in, in general, I have got, I've been trained to cope with my emotions, and I know how to regulate them, and I've got a lot of skills. But not everyone has that privilege. And a lot of patients that I see have got into addiction really because they've not had proper parenting. You know, not necessarily that anything really bad has happened to them. Other people have come into it because they've got, you know, friends who have started clubbing and, you know, as a parent, a 16 and 20-year-old, I'm looking at my children thinking, how am I going to help them to be strong enough not to go down that route? Um, other people are actually being forced into addiction. So we see a lot of street workers who have been made dependent on heroin just so that their, their pimp can keep their power, their minister of power. 
but it's very complicated. Everyone's an individual. Go on to the next slide. Stigma is a huge thing, and I just want us to think a bit about how much we regulate our own emotions. And I think this is really useful. I do this again with all my medical students. So if you can think about, we all go through highs and lows. And like Rob was talking about, what is normal? You can be healthy even if you're feeling low, and it may be appropriate to be low. But some people have a very poor tolerance of feeling unhappy. And some people have a very poor tolerance of feeling high. So I know when I wake up in the morning, in order to get to work and actually work at my optimal level, I have to have three cups of coffee. You know, if I haven't had my three cups of coffee, you're going to get a grouchy Dr. Cocaine, I'm sorry. You know? But equally, you know, if you think about people that are going clubbing, they don't want to be in that pink zone. They want to be up the top end, don't they? So I think this is why a lot of kids now are using the, the stimulants to get into a, a super high zone. You know, and some people could say, well, actually, when we worship, that takes us into that zone, doesn't it? Yeah? So, you know, a lot of you will get ecstasy, you know, literally ecstasy from worshipping, and that's right and proper and good. Yeah? If we come back to the next slide, please. What happens when you take a drug? You know, people say, oh, people take drugs to get high. Let's just talk about that for a minute. Certainly that's true. So if, when you first take heroin, for instance, you will get a lovely high. But then there's a rebound physiologically, and you usually go through a low. And what happens when you use a drug more and more frequently is those highs get less and the lows get more. So once someone's actually been physically addicted to someone, they, they usually don't get any pleasure out of taking the drug at all. All they get is a stopping of the badness of the drug. Does that make sense? And this is a very physiological process. So what do they do? They take more, you know, because they're still seeking the high. They want to feel high but the drug isn't going to do it for them. And, and it's a very difficult lesson for people who have an, an addiction to actually learn that you know, once you're dependent, you, you're almost never going to get that high. All you're going to get maybe is oblivion. But you won't actually get the positive effects of the drug after you've become dependent on it. On the next slide. Okay. So just a, a really quick little exercise. Just in pairs, I want you to think about these, these two things. And it, there should, well, should be a line in the middle. So what do you do to help you to become more alert when you need to be? So if you got woken up at 2 o'clock at night by your 2-year-old who, who needs, uh, needs something, how do you wake yourself up? And what, you, what do you do to help yourself wind down? And what I want to do with this exercise is actually to think about, if you can understand that in yourself, then when you're talking to someone who has a dependence, you know, if you can actually identify you know, how you cope, then you can help share those skills. Hopefully you're not using it using drugs or alcohol when you say these answers. You know, how many people smoke cigarettes here? Yeah, brave people. In Germany, you know, almost all the Christians have a normal s smoking relation. This is a very cultural thing. In Britain, we see smoking as addiction, but the German Christians, you know, have almost the same population smoking in their churches as non-Christians. Okay, so if you can just maybe just for 60 seconds, just have a think about that. Think about a, re a recent situation where you've needed to buck up or you've needed to calm down and what have you done to actually get yourself into that state. Okay, I'm going to stop you there. Yeah. We've just gone to the next slide. There's my slide. Okay, I just want, for those of you who don't work with drugs, just to give you a couple of definitions. So you hear a lot of people talking about recreational drug use. So this is when you're using drugs and you're not dependent on it and you're using it, you're taking a decision, you're in control. I'm going to take this ecstasy in this nightclub because I, you know, I want to have a good high time. 
What do we think about that? Is that a problem? Why is it a problem? There could be a biblical reason why it's a problem if you choose to use a drug. It's not? That's right. Okay, good. Any other? Choosing not to follow God. So you're, choosing, you're basically choosing to give part of your mind over to God. Any other reason why it might not be a good idea? Loss of self-control. Loss of self-control. But you're, you're controlling it. You know, I'm doing it. I'm, these are just... These so it can be a gateway to other things. One more thing? Denying reality. Yep. Yep. What about the fact it's illegal? Would that be a factor? <laughs> yeah. They're called legal highs. Some of them are called legal highs. So some of them aren't technically illegal, but a lot of the drugs that people are taking now are actually illegal. They are illegal. You know, and we're, as Christians, we're told not to break the law, aren't we? But it's interesting, that answer almost never comes out when I have debates. It's just not a factor in people's lives. It's quite interesting, you know. Yeah. Okay, next definition. What if they weren't illegal? Well, yeah. That's right. It was only became illegal in the 50s, didn't it? So, but I mean, there are other, other reasons, but, you know, legality is one reason, isn't it? So... Problematic drug use is a concept that you'll hear more and more if you're working with addiction or if you're working with social work. And this is really because we want to get away from this idea of being an addict or you know, only dependence being a problem. So it can, either, it can still be recreational, or, but it's actually something that's causing someone harm, either socially, mentally, and I would put spiritually there as well. Okay, the next one. So what kind of drugs are out there? Just to let you know, these are the kinds of ranges of drugs. It's, you know, it's a bit like going to Woolworths when it existed, isn't it? You know, you can go and design, you know, if you think about, you know, we talked about that high and low getting into the zone. You know, these people nowadays, um, at the age of 12 and 13, 14, they know which are uppers, they know which are downers. They know which are going to give them funny, bizarre experiences. And to be honest, my patients have a lot more knowledge than I have. Again, it can be quite daunting when you start talking to someone who's got an addiction, you know, because you really feel that, you know, unless you've been through, been through it, and even if you've been through it, you've usually been through one path rather than through every path. Yeah. Do you all know what these drugs are? Yeah. We'll have some free samples later. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a very sad individual. I went to university for nine years and never got offered one drug. Isn't that <laughs> sad? And then I got married to a cocaine, so I get it every day. <laughs> Sorry, sorry, not every day. <laughs> Next slide, please. Um, it's like a stimulant. These are probably the new kid on the, on the block, aren't they? Okay, we had LSD, but now we've got a whole range of different psychostimulants. Uh, these, these are slides from Crew 2000. Have any of you ever heard of Crew 2000? This is our stimulant service in Edinburgh. So I just wanted to let you know what the, the new definitions are. I'm not going to go through it. Next one. Amphetamine used to be the big one in Edinburgh, but now we've got a much wider range. Um, these are the kinds of problems that they can cause. This is my only dynamic slide. I couldn't make out how to stop it from crying. So if you think about it, if you, if you didn't know someone was using drugs and they presented with these symptoms, 
know, they're very non-specific, aren't they? You can't just say, oh, that person's got anxiety, they must be using drugs. Or that person's got depression, they must be using drugs. So unless you're thinking about drugs when you come across people in the church in any situation, unless you actually have the courage to ask, it's very easy to miss, miss the diagnosis, miss the drug use completely. Okay, next one. Okay, this is one of my favorite slides. This is a major issue in Scotland because I think Scottish glasses are just bigger than English glasses. I've got no other explanation. You know, and it's quite funny if anyone's from Lanarkshire, there's, there used to be a guy from, who ran the Lanarkshire Alcohol Problem Service called Jim and he looked just like that guy. It was really funny. The first time I put that slide up, everyone thought it was him. But you know, one of the problems with, with drug misuse is it, it almost forces the body almost, almost chemically into a pattern of behaviours. And one of these, the first of these behaviours is denial. Okay, so most people, when they drink at home, they have a bottle of vodka, and it's very difficult to actually spot that you're buying that bottle more often. So with alcohol, particularly, it can be very insidious. So I remember that when I first, um, in my 20s, I didn't drink at all. I was a very boring person. And then when I had children, I started to drink. Yeah? <laughs> so I went from having maybe a drink at Christmas to actually thinking, well, actually, maybe I need a drink tonight. You know, I had, went from naught to two in, in two weeks. I adopted two children, so it was very traumatic for me. Uh, I found out I wasn't a, a perfect mother that I thought I was going to be from doing youth work. Um, but, I, you know, I suddenly, we were actually doing this talk with the medics, and I, I came back and I thought, actually, I'm drinking a lot more than I used to drink this time last year. And so I actually thought, and even when you have that thought, you think that's actually almost a, a diagnosis of having a problem substitution. If you think, am I drinking more than you probably are? But you know, the denial is, is huge among people who have alcohol problems. Next slide. Do you recognize any of these drugs? This is uh, the new epidemic after recreational drugs. This is iatrogenic um, drug misuse. So if you have a relative who's over the age of 60 or 70, the likelihood is that they're going to be on a sleeping tablet. And the problem with that is that that sends a message to the next generation that that's normal, that's expected. Um, Valium now comes into the country in, a, Valium in, so, in such large quantities that they don't even check for it in the parcel department anymore. They've just given up. So most of my patients who are using Valium, usually using the top, the top little blue one at the top, They'll be taking the normal dose if you've got anxiety and say you, you're going to have your driving test or something and your doctor gives you a five milligram tablet. You might, have, you might give you three five milligrams. The patients I see are taking 100 to 200 a day. Yeah. Milligrams, not tablets. No, so 10, 10 to 20. Okay. The other problem we have with um, benzodiazepines is they're also used when you have back pain. So if you have a bad back, it's a very, very good antispasmodic. So a lot of people get a taste of it. It's a bit like, you know in Narnia when they have the, um, the, the Turkish delight? You know, you have that one piece and you realize, oh, actually all your problems go away, you know, with this tablet. Can you move on to that slide? Don't know if any of, anyone's old enough to remember this little tin. Um, in the 50s and 60s, Valium was given out as mother's little helper. So if women came in feeling a bit stressed, they would go home with one of these boxes. And uh, unfortunately, it's, in the short term, it's a drug that works so well. You know, it's brilliant. If you're going to have surgery, have one of those tubes down or up, then you, you get something that's like Valium because it makes you forget what's happening and it relaxes you. And it's brilliant. But the problem is it only works for a few days. And within five days, you can be addicted. 
Yeah. Okay, next slide. This is a picture of a receptor in the brain, or a diagram, not, a, not actually a picture. Um, if you can see here, this is a very complicated receptor called the GABA receptor. And if you look at all the different, it's got lots of little subcomponents, and a lot of the drugs actually act through this. It's what I call you know, a final common pathway for a lot of our drugs. So just to remind you that something is happening physically in the brain yeah, when people go onto these. And if you just take alcohol, for instance, it increases activity. But chronically, when you get dependent, it decreases it. Yeah, so that, remember I talked about that up and down at the beginning? So this is probably the physiological explanation. But to be honest, we really don't know much yet as, uh, as doctors about how these things happen in the brain. We don't know much about tolerance and why it develops. So this is one reason why I'm so excited to be in addiction, because with scanning, we're beginning to understand more and more about how the brain works. Next slide. This is the one that everyone gets on their high horse about. Um, most of my work is with opiate addiction, and there are several different treatments. You've probably all heard of methadone and the controversy around that. There's a new drug called buprenorphine, which is a bit easier to get off than methadone that's just come in, and we have a blocking agent for that as well. And then we have something called lefexidine to help people in detox, which doesn't work very well. But just in case people talk about this, this is why I call the green giant the, the methadone liquid, because it's green. I don't want to talk much about that. If anyone wants to talk about methadone, I'm happy to see them afterwards. Um, but it's a very uh, political hot potato. All I will say is that in countries where there's no methadone, the HIV-positive rates in the pregnant drug users are massive. In Russia, it's about 65%, whereas here, I haven't seen a new case um, of HIV through drug use because of our needle exchange and methadone program. So it works very well. Next. Um, so it is the most researched drug in the world, and it's proven to do all these things I've just said, reducing crime. Let's be honest here. You know, methadone treatment wasn't funded to help people with addiction. It was funded to help the people that don't have the addiction not to have the crime, not to have the HIV. So if you look at when methadone actually became more available, which is when just about when I was finishing my training in the 80s and 90s. Um, you know, people, HIV came in, do you remember 19, about 1983? And then suddenly everyone was interested in treating the addicts because we knew that if we didn't get people off the streets and off the needles that HIV would become very prevalent the way it has done in Africa. So, you know, people moan about, you know, that someone on methadone costs 1,500 a year for their drugs. But in fact, the reason it's, it's funded is really so that your sons and daughters don't get HIV. Mm. I've got very strong feelings about that. I won't go on anymore. I'll start crying. Okay, but we know it's not a cure. All it does is it holds someone in their dependence. And as I talked about earlier, we're now realizing that we've got to do more than just give them a, a liquid. We've got to actually rehabilitate people. Next one. So barriers to recover. As we talked about, these patients are all very complicated. Everyone's very individual. It's not like diabetes, where you can just say, you've got diabetes, you need to have insulin. Um, there's a lot of stigma around it. And certainly in the church, it's very difficult for someone who's a Christian to actually come forward to an elder and say, I'm struggling with addiction. It doesn't happen very much. There's a lot of fatalism about addiction. You know, once an addict, always an addict. And I think AA, although it's absolutely fantastic and we know it works brilliantly, because of that, you know, I'll always be an addict. It does sometimes give hopelessness to the families that they're gonna be dealing with this for the rest of their life. It's a very low priority as far as services go. There's a feeling that this is a self-inflicted disorder, whereas we know, from, you know, as Christians, it's not. 
It's a feeling that nothing can be done. And then, you know, is it a social and spiritual problem rather than a medical problem? Go on to the next one. Okay. So I think as Mark talked about, you know, maintenance or detox isn't a cure. It's, you know, simply getting someone to a state where you can actually start working with somebody. That doesn't really show up very well, does it, in yellow? Um, next slide. We just skip that one actually because we're running out of time. Okay. Withdrawal. I remember being very shocked um, when I was on the wards as a junior doctor that um, someone was coming in who inherited in withdrawal and the doctor said, the senior doctor said, oh, it's only just like bad flu. You know, he doesn't need anything, you know. But in fact, we know it's very unpleasant. This was actually painted by somebody who was going through opiate and benzodiazepine withdrawal. So it's extremely upsetting and People have been known to commit suicide during withdrawal because they can't cope. Next one. Equally, detox isn't a cure. So as Mark said, you know, he, he miraculously had a healing from God, but in fact it took many years to undo the damage that had been done through addiction. Because not only have you got everything that caused you to be addicted, you've also got what's happened during your addicted lifestyle. And remember that on average people take 10 years before they come for treatment. And that's 10 years of, you know, loss of self-esteem, physical injury, mental health injury, often recurrent trauma. A lot of patients are beaten up or abused um, during their addiction. So it's a very, very long process, the healing process, after someone even stops taking drugs. We have something called smart recovery. I don't know if you've heard about this in, in Edinburgh. One of the problems with AA is a lot of people just can't cope with the AA framework. So there's a new framework which has come over from America called Smart Recovery, and we're starting these groups up across um, the whole of Lothian. Um, they will eventually be peer-led groups, and there's nothing better for someone than to hear someone's story who's already been through it, because you have that more authority. Um, so these groups are now starting up. The other thing that can be very protective is belonging to a community outside your addictive lifestyle. And this is why I really think we have a responsibility as, as church to really make a positive effort to include people in church. But if you think about it, if you've been in a, in doing an addictive behavior for a long time, everything's about now. You know, when you're an addict, you want your hit now. You have to make your money now. For someone like that to come into a normal church service and sit through possibly a half-hour sermon, was it an hour and a half Carl talks or something? But, uh, it's actually very, very difficult for someone to actually come in and face all the judgment because they will think that you're judging them even if they're not. To actually talk to someone and actually um, listen and take part for a long time can be very difficult. So later on I want to come back to that. Can we go to the next slide? Okay, so part two, what does the Bible say about addiction? I'm sure you all know these texts very well, but, you know... Um, the last text is one I want to concentrate on. Drunkards shall not enter the kingdom of God. Do you want to know that text? You're looking shocked. Does the Bible really say that? It's in a list of other things, quite right. So what we know is that we have the amazing hope of Jesus, that even if we've murdered, even if we've murdered millions of people, that we can have forgiveness through Jesus. So yes, anyone who has any sin is not going to get into heaven, but because of Jesus, we can all get there. Yes? 
can have the next slide. The other thing we touched on earlier is that you know, even if what you're doing isn't technically illegal, so the legal highs or drinking alcohol, which is legal, we have an obligation to love God 100%. Yeah. Greatest commandment is to love God with all your soul, all your heart, all your might. And if we're taking alcohol or drugs, then we know that's not possible. So we can conclude that addiction to anything other than God is wrong. Can you be addicted to God? Something I've heard, I've heard the, the young people say in church, I'm addicted to God. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, sorry, I'm just not hip enough anymore. That's my children tell me. Can I have the next slide? Okay. Also, we, not even that, we've even got a higher standard, haven't we? So we've got this don't sin, we've got the do good, and then we've got the, the next standard, you know, which is to, to do positively good all the time. So to pollute or harm our bodies is to desecrate the house of God. I don't know if any of you went to the struggle session up there talking about you know, feeling God in your body. Um, but this could equally apply to overeating, undereating, self-harm. Yeah? Next, please. I miss having control of the thing. So maybe we can have a little talk about that in, in our groups. What is your understanding of God's message to people with addiction? So having seen those texts, your own experience of working with people, how are you going to share your faith with someone with addiction? You've all gone very quiet all of a sudden. So just five minutes on that, and then we've got ten minutes. Okay, can I just wind your conversations up? Thank you. So the last 10 minutes, I just want to look at our response. And this is a pretty selfish part for me, because what uh, I've been doing in, in Central is meeting with uh, Brian Fleck and some other people from the church and actually thinking more constructively about what we should be doing as the church. So I'm going to use you. I hope you don't mind that. But hopefully you'll gain something from it as well. So if you can just roll on. I'd like you to take you back to that first verse from Jeremiah, you know, in the call that we obviously we all need to pray. But how can we be united in prayer? You know, it says if two or three are gathered together in some miraculous way, that prayer is, is powerful. So how can we unite across the churches in prayer? I want you to think about your own church, your own place of worship. You know, is there a welcome place for people with, with addictions there? Is there a freedom to talk about these issues? If you think about your church, are you, are you able, you know, just like you could possibly say who's diabetic or who's had their gallbladder out, you know, is there that, are you able to converse at that level about addiction or is there still so much shame either from you or from perceived from the person that they, they feel so disinhibited? Because until we get rid of the, the real shame around it, you know, until people deal with that in front of Jesus and come as equals um, to church, then we can't really be honest and have true fellowship. You know, what Jesus said is, you know, this is how people will know that you're my disciples, the way you love each other. So are you in your heart, are you in that place where you can actually get alongside a person, not like our comic sketch where you're doing the good, but actually to be a brother and a sister for, and for their pain to be your pain and for their road to recovery to be your road to recovery. Do you take, would you take joy in someone who's had their third day off the alcohol as much you know, as if it was your brother or sister? You know, hard questions, aren't they, really? Because my perception is that still, you know, there's this 
we've got a long way with mental illness. You know, I still think there's a lot of shame around mental illness, but addiction to me is further down the line. You know, we're still not really accepting of people who've had addiction problems in the church. So just have an honest think about that. How could we make that space? What could we do? And uh, I've been talking to some people from Livingston, not here, I don't think they are, who are talking about having a special service for people um, who have addiction problems where they'll feel comfortable and it's going to be a bit like a mini alpha with a meal and then a chance to talk about questions to do with God. And I, I'm ambivalent about that because part of me thinks, yes, that'd be great, but part of me thinks, well, that's very stigmatizing. You can only come to this if you're an addict, you know. So, I'm, you know, yes, I want to create a space where people feel safe, but I don't want them, everyone who goes to that meeting, they go to the meeting, they must be an addict. Do you understand that? So how can we create a safe place in our church, you know, um, to give an example of my, one of my best friends in Manchester, she's got seven of her own children, and she's got three adopted, three fostered stroke adopted children, one of whom has autism. And the, the church leader said, I'm sorry, you can't bring him to church anymore because he makes too much noise. You know, so if we're feeling like that about kids that have got a really organic, you know, you can't get more, you know, that can't be that kid's fault, can it? If we can be that excluding of something, then what chance has someone who's got an addiction coming in who has problems with concentration or memory or maybe who wants to be with God but is withdrawing, you know? So we really need to tackle this. We need to fall on our faces before God and pray about this and actually say, you know, really make us like Jesus. Okay, individual responses. Can I have the next slide? We need to have both these things, yeah? Because remember, someone who's gone to an addiction, they will have addictive behavior still. You know, so you have a risk, you have an increased risk. Are you willing for all your possessions to be taken by somebody who you've trusted? You know, is your wallet really God's wallet? Is your gold necklace really God's gold necklace? If someone steals that from you, you know, because they, they've had a relapse. And you know, these conditions do, you can have a good time and then suddenly you're back to square one and you're back to stealing again. You know, are we willing to um, let someone who's drunk come in here and vomit on the carpet? Yeah? You need compassion, you need a brain to actually think about both, both of these things. You're looking a bit glum. <laughs> yeah. Who is this anyway? Do you, do you also identify this? My medical students didn't know who this was. I've got to update it to be Barack Obama, I think. Okay, can I have the next one? Probably wouldn't work with Barack Obama, would it? So, useful tips. Um, have you heard of this term, unconditional positive regard? Those of you who've done therapies will probably have heard of this. So this is a term, you know, psychobabble term. It's really self-explanatory, isn't it? If, you, if you're a Christian, you love someone unconditionally, just like Jesus does. Jesus sees all your sin, and he doesn't pretend it's not there. You know, he accepts you as you are, and he helps you to move on with your life and deal with all your sin, but he still loves you 100%. You know, and, and when you're actually working with for me, patients, honestly, that's the attitude I try and have, that, you know, although they may irritate the hell out of me that particular day, you know, I'm sure God gets irritated by us, you know, but I still love them 100%. Don't be afraid to ask questions. This is another thing that people say, you know, you know, what shall I do, you know, if someone, if I'm not sure, ask. I've got people crowding at the back, are we supposed, is that clock slow? Have I got another five minutes or? 
I've got five minutes, which is the people crowding to come in. Okay. Um, meet the person where they are and don't expect that because you think they should be moving forward that that's where they are. They may be moving back and may be wanting your help to stop moving further back. Um, consider carefully what you're willing to do and don't be afraid to say no. So if you think that something that they want isn't, you know, is outside your boundary, you need to know what your boundary is and actually be willing to say, I can't provide that. Maybe point them to somewhere that can. Can I have the next one? Um, can we just skip through that one? Sorry, because it's... Addiction is a spiritual illness. Um, okay, we know that addiction reflects deep spiritual problems, and we know that God has the power to heal. You know, we know that his word is active and can penetrate anything, any skin that people can put on, so don't be afraid to use religious texts. I've always been really worried with my patients. In the NHS, I have obviously a barrier for using religious texts, but when I talk to people outside work or on the street, and if I say something, I used to be really scared almost, almost like I was ashamed of the gospel, do you know what I mean? Or that I was afraid, I guess I was afraid of being rejected as a doctor. So I found that you know, spiritual words, quotes, can be so powerful in a way that I just can't explain. So don't worry about seem, being seen to be over-religious, because most people who have addiction actually have a really huge understanding of, of religion, even if they don't know the word and they don't know the truth. Can I have the next one? Um, can we just skip through the next two? Sorry, I've run out of time. I knew I was going to do this. Please lobby on the website. Next one. So, this is where I'd like to use you. I've got a vision that I'm developing um, for an interchurch resource um, and a prayer, you know, some kind of linking of the prayer together for Scotland. I want to make a directory of Christian and secular resources because it's very difficult actually to go out there and find out what there is. So if you, go, if you put in CBT, you'll get lots of resources. If you put in addiction, Edinburgh, you know, it's just not very helpful. Um, move on to the next one. So what I'd like you to do if you've got time now or any time during the rest of the day is actually to complete the response form that's on there. And I was going to get you to do this in groups, but I think we've run out of time. I'd like you to write down on the black of the blue card of any resources that you know of that you think might be useful for someone with addiction. It doesn't have to be an addiction resource, but for instance, if you know of somewhere that people can get housing support, or if they can get uh, clothing or counselling services, if you could write those down for me, either on the blue cards or email them into the Mind and Soul office, that would be really helpful. Um, I don't think we've got time for an open mic. Is there anyone that would like to say something or has got anything burning they'd like to share? Okay, last slide. I think that's the last thing. So the last thing is just to remind ourselves that these are human beings, it's not rocket science. All right, so don't be afraid to talk to someone about addiction. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Lucy, for that very informative uh, session. Lucy uh, stood in for us today for Andrea Wigglesworth, as Rob said earlier, who couldn't be here. So although she had been scheduled to do uh, one of the lunchtime seminars, she, she uh, ended up doing this. So we're very grateful to her that she so ably stepped in, and it was such an informative session.